Well, we are in probably one of the greatest sections of all of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is found in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 43 is where we'll pick it up today. And, you know, Jesus makes a lot of radical statements, statements that you think, that is really extreme, and this will be one of them. In fact, I don't know if there's a more radical statement in all of this message than what we're going to read this morning when he says this, love your enemies. For most people, they're going to respond by saying that's impossible. (laughs) How is it possible to love your enemies? An enemy would be someone who's hostile toward you, mean to you, angry to you, hurtful to you, damaging to you. How does someone do this? Well, Oswald Sanders said the master, Jesus, expects from his disciples such conduct as can only be explained in terms of the supernatural. So it is impossible. It is impossible to live the Christian life, which the Sermon on the Mount describes, if you don't have Jesus. (laughs) Because it's an inside-out process, not performance it's not image, and, and you know, our, even our culture, just like their culture, is into that. You know, image management and performance. But Jesus talks about the heart being transformed from the inside, and when that happens, what it produces will be supernatural. It will be radical, radical Christianity. In fact, I've, I often thought loving your enemies is probably easier for dogs to do. And, um, and we have a dog in our home. It's not really our dog. It's Reed and Heather's dog, Sheila. She's an Australian shepherd, about eight years old now. But when they got called to go over to Micronesia, uh, they couldn't take Sheila. And so Sheila became a family dog. We kind of share Sheila and love having her around. And she is the, probably, the, she loves people and she loves food. Um, not necessarily in that order, but. Um, and the only people she doesn't like are probably UPS drivers. You can, some of you have dogs like this, too. They, they'll go nuts over UPS. But she is the friendliest dog. She's over-the-top friendly. Now, if you come to visit our house, and I've had this happen where I'd, I'd have eight guys sitting in a room. If you like dogs, if you like dogs, she will love you. If you really are not into dogs, she will love you even more. And so I'll watch this happen. We can have a room and have every time. And I laugh when it, when it happens. It, 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 the person who least likes dogs, she will figure out who you are. And she will come up and put her chin right on your lap and leave it there while the rest of us just smile. <laughs> Not necessarily that you're an enemy, but... I don't know, dogs may have a simpler life of this, but for us it becomes a very real challenge to love people who are unlovely, unkind, mean, hateful, spiteful, who have hurt you, who have damaged you, to love your enemies. I used to think when I first went into ministry, I won't have any enemies. Why why would I have an enemy? And then I realized that uh, I would have a few (laughs) as time went on, that I couldn't control a lot of that. 
And as I shared last week, that most of my serious enemies are not unbelievers, pagans, and heathen. They're fellow believers. How do we work with that? How do we face this? Because enemies, a person like this can rob you of your peace of mind, of your joy. They can rob you of your possessions. They can rob you of your health. And they can rob you of your very life itself. We have this realization that this kingdom of God is not the same as the kingdom of this world. We live in the kingdom of this world, but we have a different master. We have a different set of rules. And it is an eternal kingdom. You may recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born on February the 4th, 1906 in Breslau, Germany. He grew up to be a pastor, a theologian, and an author, and he led his people through one of the most horrific times in human history as Adolf Hitler sought to rule the world. You read his writings, you read biographies of him in Erwin Lutzer's book. He talks about what was taking place in the 1930s in Germany. Adolf Hitler, who we know more about now after the fact, had, had led an intense passion for German nationalism, recovering from World War I. And he showed it as a, what he called, popular Christianity. Popular Christianity. In fact, and most people don't know this, but in, in the churches in Germany, you would have a large swastika hanging in the front of the church with an embedded cross of Christ. Say, so, that can't be. How could Christians be so swayed to that? Well, Bonhoeffer was one of the members of the confessing church who saw that for what it was, tried to warn people, and he was executed April 9th, 1945, at the age of 39, 21 days before Hitler took his own life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had many enemies. He wrote the book called The Cost of Discipleship, and it answers the question, how do you love people who are trying to kill you? He really understood the teaching of Jesus that this is, if, I, if someone were to ask you, the, what is the greatest commandment in all of the Bible? And that's important because they're testing Jesus here, asking him about the law. The scribes and Pharisees want to know about the law. And he, Jesus said, I, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, what law? What is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord with all your heart. And it is to love your neighbor as yourself. You say, well, is that in the Old Testament or New? Both. And Jesus explains that. So if we were to say that the greatest command that God ever gives, that Jesus ever gives, is to love the Lord and to love your neighbor, then I would say the greatest test of that command to love is to love your enemies. The greatest command is to love the greatest test for you will be to love your enemy. And right now, you can probably think of a few <laughs> who have filled that spot in your life, 
who have been hostile towards you, unkind to you. You've not gotten it resolved. You've tried to get it resolved. It's not resolved. So Jesus is going through, and he, he is giving six illustrations of how real, authentic Christianity is a matter of the heart. This is the last one and probably the most radical. So let me, let me read from this passage. We'll begin with verse 43 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? And then this last verse of the chapter, which is to me so profound, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This morning, what I'd like to do is just take these verses. They're just they're packed with great insight into this concept of what real love is. When he says, love is the greatest command. What does it look like? So we're going to see here what they had heard, what was actually said, and then what Jesus says. So what they had heard, the Jews had heard it was a mixture of truth and tradition. Now, do we find that today? Tradition? <laughs> I mean, we, truth and tradition get so interwoven together that pretty soon you can't distinguish the difference. If you say something often enough, long enough, and loud enough, it must be true. <laughs> we used to have this little saying that now, now if you look at this verse and if you don't look too close, here's what it says. <laughs> well, what had happened in pre-World War II Germany was this. You've maybe heard of German rationalism, higher criticism, maybe not, but... There was a time period in the late 19th century where throughout Europe was this questioning of God's Word, an intellectualizing of God's Word, and a dismissing of theology. In other words, the Word of God did not have a prominent place in the lives of the people, the Christians, or the church. And so pretty soon, people became weak in their understanding of who God is and what He is like and what He has said. And so when a guy like Hitler comes along, they're not able to discern. They're not able to discern. But people like Bonhoeffer and others in the Confessing Church who had been in the Word of God and had sought it and studied it and followed it had that discernment. I think we're facing the very same thing in our country today. The popular Christianity, it's a feel-good Christianity. It's, it's, it's an amusement. It's, it's we want you to feel good. We want you to come in and have a great time. And I'm not against having a great time. I'm all for that. Um, I don't think God's against that. But you cannot put aside truth because then when Satan brings a lie, it sounds so good. Now, how could millions of Germans follow Hitler? 
And they were Christians, many of them Christians. He had his swastika in the churches. Even in our own country, we find that some of the most horrific ideologies have been espoused and promoted by Christians. As this was the same for the scribes and the Pharisees, because the scribes and the Pharisees taught some truth and some fiction, some truth and some tradition. So what does the Scripture actually say? Well, it does say, love your neighbor. We find that in Leviticus 19, verse 18. So it says, love your neighbor. What it does not say is, hate your enemy. Say, well, how did they ever come up with that? With logic. Um, It wasn't very good logic. (laughs) In fact, they would call that a a non sequitur, if you're into the the logic things. It, It doesn't follow. But here's how they did it. You know what? If I'm to love my neighbor, then what, what is conversely so is, okay, I love my neighbor, then I must be, logically, hate my enemy. That's how they got to that point. So who is my neighbor? We hear this question asked to Jesus uh, later on too. He does not say hate your enemy. There's not a place in Scripture that it says to hate your enemy. And I don't want to digress too much into this, but we do read in the Psalms and precatory prayers that that's, uh, you know, against the enemies of God. And remember last week, we've talked the last couple of weeks about how there's a difference between God's civil law and also the way we function as Christians. The difference between hating God's enemies, because I think that's clear, and then my personal enemies. Now, Bonhoeffer had this interwoven a lot, so it's not an easy thing to respond. But you've got to recognize what is personal and what is against God. But this is the conclusion they came to, that my neighbor is, well, first of all, they have to be a Jew. And then they have to be family, friends, and like-minded people. Basically, what you get down to is anybody who's not like me, who's different than me, that I don't like, is not my neighbor. And that became their tradition. And so they hated, they hated their enemies. And the Jews at this time were some of the most hateful people, and the worst ones were the religious leaders. See how they got to that? I mean, the ones that should be preaching, teaching the love of God are actually teaching people how to hate the Romans, hate the Gentiles, hate the pagans, hate the half-breed Samaritans. This was not the teaching of Jesus. Uh, there was discovered a, in archaeology a Jewish maxim, and this is one of their traditions, and it, it goes like this. If a Jew sees a Gentile fall into the sea, let him by no means lift, lift him out. For it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. (laughs) So in other words, see ya. (laughs) That's their tradition. And they they had allowed themselves to have permission to hate. So they clouded this issue. 
There's a difference between God's enemies and God's justice and my personal enemies and my personal justice. You start to cloud that, you begin to justify everything you want to do. How can people so religious and so much about God's word and so uh, committed to that be so off? Because they had become the most unloving people. You think when God's greatest command was to love. Well, I think we see it today. Um, and And my prayer is that we would get clarity like Jesus wants to bring. So here's what was actually said. And this, this is what our second point we're here. Jesus is kind of saying, here's what actually was said. <laughs> In Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, when it talks about who is my neighbor, uh, every Jew would say, got to be a Jew, got to be family, got to be friends, got to have all the same ideology, someone I like. You know, we, we kind of separate it down to what, whatever we want. Here's what Leviticus 19, this is further on when it says, to love your neighbor as yourself. When an alien resides with you in your land, now do we have that in our country today? I'm not, I'm not going to get political here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. We have civil laws. We follow, okay? But we also have a way we act. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as a native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. Wow. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Now understand this, we are not Israel, so you've got to, you've got to, we're in America, we're not, so we don't apply everything across the board, but you follow the laws of the land. But the attitude is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to wrap your arms around and say, the first thing I need to do, my priority in my life is first to learn to love myself. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. What, what, what he's saying is, just as you give attention to every little detail of your life and you naturally take care of yourself, you treat other people the same way. It, it, is, it goes right in line with the golden rule that we have. Do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. That's, that's the message of this love. So what he's saying, my attitude toward an alien who is not a Jew, who's in my land, what is my attitude toward him? Is love. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4, it talks about, um, and I know these are kind of detailed laws, but you see the spirit of it. It says, if you see your brother Israelites, ox or sheep strain, do not ignore it. Make sure you return it to your brother. Now, that's the one they saw. Here's the one they didn't see. In Exodus 23, 4 and 5, it says, if you come across your enemy's stray ox, what do you think he's going to say? Kill it? Take it? (laughs) No, he says, if you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, lying helpless under its load, no, it doesn't say finish it off. <laughs> it says you want to refrain, if you want to refrain from helping it, you, but you must help it. So this is not Old Testament, New Testament, different. This is Old Testament. 
love your enemy. And I think probably the greatest story, and I don't have time to get into it completely here, but, you know, we have Good Samaritan, Good Sam Hospital. You know what that is? Okay, why is that name Good Samaritan? The story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. And it came from one of these provoking Pharisees. Well, who is my neighbor? Because they had a very exclusive definition of what a neighbor qualified to be and what they could be nice to. And Jesus went on to say, well, there's a certain man. He's traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a treacherous, treacherous stretch. And uh, he fell upon thieves and he was wounded. He's going to die on the road. And so three people passed by. The first one, <laughs> what do you think it is? First one's a priest, okay? He's probably, he's probably some Pharisee. He's at the height of spiritual leadership, and he crosses by on the other side. He's not gonna, he's not, and this is a Jew. This is a Jew. He's a Jew. Next one comes by as a Levite. He's a helper to the priest. He passes by on the other side. Then along comes a Samaritan who the Jews hate. Okay, the Jews hate the Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're impure people. And the Samaritan stops. Actually, actually, he, the other guys, they're walking down this side of the road, and they go on the other side of the road. When you read this passage, they go on the other side of the road to avoid him. <laughs> and the Samaritan crosses to the other side of the road to meet him. He goes out of the way. When the others went out of the way to avoid it, he goes out of the way to meet that need. Puts him on his donkey, washes his wounds, takes him to a hotel, puts him up, pays the bill, says, I'm going to come back and check on him. Who does that? And then he asks them a question. Remember how I said 180 questions in the New Testament? They asked Jesus, almost all of them, he answers with either a story or another question. And this one, he does both. So he tells a story and says, who was his neighbor? Well, I mean, what are you going to say? Well, the one who helped him. One commentator said this. He said, your neighbor is, defining your neighbor, is anyone along your path that has a need. Anyone along your path who has a need. It's pretty convicting. Bonhoeffer said this. He said many great things. But he said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of all, his disciples even deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come to, he came to bring peace to the enemies of God. We sang about that this morning. I don't know if you picked that up. I did because I, I prepared this message, but it talks about thank you. We're all enemies of God. When we're born into this world, we're all enemies of God. We've sinned. But this is who he loved and came for. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. It's where we belong. In the thick of foes. So this is what our final part of this message is. What does Jesus say? Here's what you've heard. Here's what it actually says. <laughs> now here's what I'm going to say to you. He reinforces the greatest commandment of all. 
And he reinforces the greatest test of that command. So the command we've already established is impossible without Jesus. And it is especially impossible without Jesus to love your enemy. It'd be easier for me to love your enemy or you to love my enemy than it is for me to love my own. What is love? What is love? What does he mean to love your enemy? It's a common word in our English language. I've shared this with you before. I was shocked at the Super Bowl to see a commercial that uh, explained the four Greek words for love. How many of you saw that? I'm thinking, I can't believe they have this on this a, a commercial for New York life insurance. And they and they actually got it pretty right. They didn't, you know, they could have said a lot more, but sixty seconds and how many how much many million do you pay for sixty seconds? I don't know. But uh they explained that the Greeks who had a very detailed exact language, very descriptive language, uh much more than English, had four different words to say they love something. The first one is storge which is uh, a love for what is attractive, what is familiar, what is enjoyable, what is comfortable. Uh, people, places, settings, events, memories, you know. Love living in Colorado, love the snow, love the sunshine, love the, love the Broncos, uh, love these old shoes, I love pizza. <laughs> we use that same word as we use for phileo, which is uh, rather than just having an object that uh, you're comfortable with, phileo is when... When two or more of us, it could be three or more, five or more, ten or more, and then you lose some, but we have a common love and affection for an idea, a goal, brotherly love, phileo, Philadelphia. That doesn't really exude brotherly love, but uh, that's, that's where we get that. And phileo is the love of something that we share for together. And the Bible speaks of that often. The next one is eros, which you, we typically think of that's just a physical love between a man and a wife. But it, what it means really is, is one man, one woman, love for each other and no other. So when I love my wife, it's not like I'm thinking about a certain thing, but I'm, it's her. I love her. I love her alone. That's eros. It's a unique kind of love. And the last kind of love, agape, which you've probably heard the word agape many times, is, is, is new to a lot of the Greeks. Um, this, this word was not used because it wasn't understood. It was brought into play much more recently for these people. But, but when I describe agape, I would say it is active, it is unconditional, it is sacrificial, and it is eternal. Let me just quickly hit those. The word, we say agape, agapao is the verb form, and that's the way it's written here, agapao. It's, it's, it's an active verb. So, so this isn't a state of being. Love is a condition. This is an action. It is a verb. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, it describes love with 15 verbs. <laughs> 15 verbs! It's not how I feel. It's not an emotion. It's not I'm attracted to you or I love you because I love how I feel about this. No, it is an action. It is a verb. It does something. 
It's active. Secondly, it's unconditional. It doesn't, it's not a response to something where I have, a, like, like in the other kinds of loves, a store gaze, I respond, I, I love this, or I, I love being with these people, or I love sharing. It's not a response to something. It is unconditional. In other words, it acts independently of all circumstances. <laughs> wow. I mean, you think, is it something impossible? That's impossible. But that's what it is. Three, it's sacrificial. It sacrifices. It's not a love that's mutual. I do this, you do this, I scratch my back, you scratch yours. We talked about the quid pro quo um, idea in the previous verses. No, it's not that. It is sacrificial. If you were to think of one word, it would be giving, 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 giving. It's a giver. And it is eternal. It never ends. <laughs> so, Jesus said this in John 13, 1 to his disciples. He says he loved them to the end. Now, there's nothing wrong with the other kinds of love. I mean, in fact, the other kinds of love fit into our daily lives every day. And you know what? They're part of our Christian community. They're part of our families, part of our marriages. But you cannot love an enemy with the other three kinds of love. Doesn't work. Only with agape. And agape is what Jesus did for you. Agape is what God did for you. For God so loved the world. Agapao, verb form. Unconditional. You did nothing to deserve it. Sacrificial, he gave his life. Eternal, it never ends. And we cannot meet up to the greatest test of love except through agapao, that kind of love, the same kind of love that comes from Jesus. Now he says in verse 45, there's so much in here I'd like to, expand on, but I, I, I don't for time's sake. But in, in verse 45, the second part, it says, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That pretty much means what it says is, is God's goodness, or we call common grace, is poured out to everybody. You know, when the sun comes up, everybody enjoys the sunshine. When it rains to provide the, the land to produce uh, food to eat, it's for everybody. God is good to everybody. But this, this kind of love is unique. And, and what he is making a statement to, and, and I think this is, uh, to me, a, a, when, you, when you start to think about how strong this thought is, what good is it? <laughs> what good is it if we love those who love us? What good is it if we only know how to love things that make us feel good? What good is it if I, I love pleasant things, I love good food, I love nice people, I love great experiences, and you love me, I love you back? What good is that? He says, the Gentiles do that. The heathen do that. Everybody in the world does it. What makes Christianity unique? It's agapao. It's that kind of love. Because no one loves enemies. 
apart from this kind of love. We were his enemies. And it shows us, the first part of verse 45, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We look like our Father when we love. You know how your kids sometimes, they act like you act, walk like you walk? How does a Christian look like their father? Love. Agape love. And what that does is impacts this world. Not when you love your friends, but when you love your enemies. This is tough. This is this is. This is hard for these people to swallow. And he comes to the very end to this verse, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what's interesting about this, it is, it is saying that the standard is perfection, which none of us meet, and we can only meet through what Jesus does for us. I can't live a perfect life to get to heaven. That's impossible, possible for you. But Jesus lived the perfect life, and he substituted himself on the cross for me, and died for me. He fulfilled God's righteous demands for perfection himself. But, but perfect, is, it's like a play on words. Because perfection is also used many times to describe the height of maturity. So, if I were to say, you know, a kid grows up, you hope they mature as they get bigger, <laughs> um, but they develop. You're going to find that in 2 Peter 1, you're going to find in James chapter 1, you're going to find a number of references in the Bible to Christian growth and maturity. And the, and the final distinguishing mark of real maturity, you got it, it's love. <laughs> they know how to love. You know, you could say immature Christians, they can know how to do the right thing, you know. They can learn to worship. They can learn to tithe and give their offerings. They can learn, they can learn to serve God. But <clears throat> the height of their real spiritual maturity and when they most look like their heavenly father is when they love like he loved. So to me, it's a, it's a lot to put on us. In verse 44, it says, but I tell you, this is how we do it. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I know you were going to ask me this question. How do we do this? How do I love my enemies? Well, here's the answer. It's verse 44. I tell you, pray for them. Pray for them. Lord, I pray you bring down fire from heaven and scorch them. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? We, we misunderstand David's prayers and psalms. These are not personal they're personal in the sense he feels them. That's another sermon sometime. But what do I pray for? God, work in their heart as you did mine. Forgive them as you forgave me. Turn them to you as only you can. And I'll tell you what, when you start to pray for people, it'll change your heart. And it has the power to change their lives. Not just to make life better for you, that your enemy would go away, but that person would come to know true salvation and eternal life and joy and peace 
That's how we pray. It'll do just as much to get your heart right as it will for theirs. It's an amazing thought. Now, in Luke chapter 6, there's another sermon that, and I think it's a separate sermon, but he expands on this thought, and he says, pray for them, and he says, do good to them, and greet them. So I think all of those things, but I think it begins by prayer. Lord, help me not to hate. Help me not to want to get even. Help me to, to leave vengeance and justice with you. And help me, to, help me to love these people. And I pray, Lord, that they would come to know your forgiveness and your kindness and your grace. Because there is nothing that will convince this world of an authentic Christianity than when a person's life is totally and radically changed. And the greatest evidence of that is love. The greatest test is loving your enemies. So how would you say you're doing with that? We all have enemies. I know that. If you've got a pulse, you've got enemies. How are you handling that? And I see it in two ways. One for you personally, and then us collectively as a church. And that's what Bonhoeffer was dealing with in his day. And so how does this happen? It comes through knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way, which I think many of you have done. Many of you here have put your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. But the second thing I would say is this, is you walk with him. You walk with him day by day. And when you learn to walk with him, you begin to look like him and to live like him. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, some of these statements are so hard. They're hard for us to process. But I pray that you'd help us not just to love generally and love in these other ways that any, anyone can do, but to love our enemies the same way you loved us. For we at one time were your enemies. And so, Lord, I pray that the testimony of that to the world would be an attractive, authentic, compelling Christianity. We ask for that.